We're celebrating a feast day today. And you need to know a little bit about this feast day. Now, I have to admit, I love every single feast day. They're all grand. This one sometimes gets a tiny bit neglected, but it's wonderful. The Feast of the Transfiguration of Christ. Now, this, is, this thing is incredible. You sort of have to have it in your mind. So just by way of review, the Lord takes with him three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, the big three. He takes them with him up to the top of Mount Tabor. Uh, some of you have been there. I have never been there, but some of you have been on Mount Tabor. I have not. But he takes them up there, and a remarkable things hap a thing happens. All of a sudden, I mean, there they're standing there, Peter, James, John, and Jesus. There they are on the Mount of Transfiguration. Only at that point, it is not the Mount of Transfiguration. It's just Mount Tabor. They've been there before. It's not new to them. They've, they've gone up there. And all of a sudden, Jesus countenance is utterly and totally changed and he glows so bright that there are no words that the writers of Matthew, Mark, and Luke can describe how bright he actually is. The statement they use, Mark uses this statement, uh, I, I learned this from the King James Version of the Bible, he, he says he became, he glowed whiter than any fuller can whiten them. Now, what a fuller is, is sort of a kind of a dry cleaner. I mean, he's a professional launderer. And the only expression Mark could find to describe what he had been told, probably obviously by Peter, is he describes this, there's no way I can tell you how white, now listen, how white his garments became. I mean, his clothes glowed. What happened inside of him actually affected the garments he wore. And now this is just a little bit incidental, but sometimes some of you wonder, well, why do you put icons on the altar to bless them? And, and why do you do all this blessing stuff? Well, interestingly enough, we believe that one thing touching another can actually bless it. Do you believe that? I do. Now, here's one reason why I believe it. Because Jesus, there was, he was transformed, I mean, his entire physical body was transformed, but so powerful was this transfiguration that even his clothes glowed. Can you imagine what it would be like if all of a sudden they call this thing a felonian? If all of a sudden this thing started to just glow, well, it would scare the bajabbers out of me. <laughs> I would be shocked at what was happening. I'd wonder, oh my goodness, what's going to happen to my poor old soul? Well, Peter, James, and John, they see this, and then, oh boy, now you're ready for this. They see Moses and Elijah. Now, let's get clear about Moses first. Do you know how long Moses has been dead? Well, he's been dead by the, the most radical critics would say he's been dead for at least 12 centuries. I would say it's closer to 14. That's a long time to be dead. And here's Moses and Jesus. I don't mean to be trite now, but they're sort of hobnobbing. They're talking about what's going to happen in the near future. They're going to talk about the passion of Christ. 1,400 years dead. Now, I don't know how Peter, James, and John figured out who he was. I mean, you know, of all the people that have ever lived, they figured out it was Moses. And then... A youngster appears with them also, Elijah. 
Now, Elijah's only been dead about uh, seven centuries. I mean, he's just a kid. Seven centuries and maybe almost 14 centuries, and here they are talking to Jesus on the mountain, and I imagine they're glowing too, but what Peter, James, and John remember is the Lord glowing incredibly, and they hear this discussion about what's to come. They don't understand it all. You've got to admit, this is a pretty big deal. Remarkable, is it not? Now, why did it happen? Was it necessary for Jesus to discuss his coming passion, his arrest, his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension into heaven? Was it necessary that they have this conversation on the Mount of Transfiguration? Well, of course not. It wasn't necessary for Jesus to have the counsel of Moses and Elijah nor was it necessary for Moses and Elijah to have their input into what was going on. It was nice. For whose benefit was all this taking place? Well, it was for Peter, James, and John, and for the other disciples, and for us. The benefit, what the benefit is to us. Now, what's the benefit? Well, I imagine that if I put my mind to it, and you did too, and you were willing to endure it, I think we could do a sermon every Sunday for a minimum of a year and preach on the transfiguration and find something new every single Sunday about this event and this feast day that we celebrate this event. I think we can find that. But I'm going to take just one thing today. Now, one thing I want to take is I want to encourage you and help you and prepare you to have heaven on your mind. Because here's what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration that day. Peter, James, and John, just the three, they got a glimpse of what heaven is going to look like. Particularly, they got a glimpse of what people in heaven are going to look like. They got a glimpse of what Jesus would look like what Moses looks like and what Elijah looks like. And when they describe it, they don't say, you know, I can't, can't you imagine Peter saying, yeah, well, we saw Moses up there. He was this sort of shriveled up little old guy, really, you know, crinkly skin. And, and uh, boy, did he look old. You know, there's no comment about that whatsoever, nor about Elijah. They just, they see them uh, and even recognize them. And by the way, this is another little freebie. You know, you wonder sometimes, will you recognize people in heaven? Well, of course you'll recognize them in heaven. And I expect to recognize my paternal grandfather, whom I've never seen, ever once. He was dead before I was born. And you say, you're going to recognize Gerhard Braun? Well, of course I'll recognize him. How do you know? Well, if Peter, James, and John could figure out that was Moses and Elijah, I can figure out who my grandfather is. But why were they shown this? To get this glimpse of heaven. Now, I got some figures for you today. I have, there's a particular uh, company that does surveys. They're the best in the world on these kinds of surveys. They survey Christian things or religious things. Now, here's what I discovered as I went to uh, this site to, to get this information. Eight out of ten Americans believe there is life after death. That's 80%, folks. 
80% of all Americans believe there is a life after death. 9% more say they're not sure if there's life after death. Remarkably, only 1% of Americans do not believe there is life after death. What does that survey prove? Not a whole lot. It just doesn't prove whether there's a life after death or not, does it? It just proves that this is what Americans happen to believe. Furthermore, 79% of Americans agree that every person has a soul that will live forever either in God's presence or in God's absence. Okay? It's rather remarkable. It's a little higher than I expected to find. Interestingly, also, 76% of all Americans... Now, you have to understand, this is a highly reputable survey team that does this. This is not some little fly-by-night outfit. They've been doing this for at least 20 years, and uh, one of the sidelights of their survey business is to do this kind of a thing. What they discovered was that 76% of all Americans believe that heaven exists. Now, you say, well, 80% believe there's a life after death. Well, 76% of Americans believe there's actually a heaven, a place. And 71%, and this astonished me, 71% actually believe a place called hell exists. Remarkable, is it not? Well, what I find out with all those figures and what amazes me, oh, by the way, this is a funny, uh, almost comical thing. Can you guess what the percentage is of those, um, of all Americans? Now, 80% believe there's a life after death. 76% believe there's a heaven. 71% believe there's a hell. Do you know what the percentage, can you guess what the percentage is of Americans who believe they're going to go to hell when they die? One half of a percent. Five-tenths of a percent believe there's actually a place called, that they're going to go to hell. 71% believe there's such a place, but only half a percent believe they're going to go there. And the others, the others all believe they're going to end up in heaven. Well, you know, I really hope so. I wish everybody gets there, okay? But what I'm after today is I just want to get your focus on heaven. Sometimes I get so distressed, even in my own soul, about me, and I get distressed about you. If you do not have a reward ahead of you, if you don't have a reason why you should live a righteous and godly life, if you don't have a reason why you should believe that Christ is going to come again. You know, I was thinking about this yesterday, that, that do you know how much we're required to believe? Do you know how much an Orthodox Christian is actually required to believe? Well, if you look at your book, what is it on about? Page 34. It's about that long. That's all you're required to believe. You're going to say it in a few minutes. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And the creed is this little short thing. But in that little thing that we're supposed to believe, that we say we believe, you know, we call it the credo, the creed. You know what the word credo means? It's a Latin word. And it means I believe. Credo. I believe. That's why we call it the creed. It's what we believe. And by the way, we don't say we believe in one God, the Father Almighty. You say, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, and that is not by chance. That's the personal confession of each one of you. It's not the corporate confession of the whole church. It's your confession. And in that, we believe, we say, 
about Jesus who is going to come and judge the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end and we believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Now sometimes when you think about heaven, what do you think about? Well, I think a lot of times, nothing. Isn't that true? I mean, you sort of think, well, you, you know it's not really, it's not strumming harps. You, you know it's not that. And, and you know it's not flying around like an angel. You know it's not that. I mean, that, that, that's kind of trite. I mean, there's nothing wrong with angels flying or whatever they do. And I'm sure there's nothing wrong with harp strumming. And some of you who are not musically inclined might be very well music, musically inclined in the afterlife. I don't know. But what I want is for you to get a glimpse of what it is like. And we celebrate this on Transfiguration Day because Jesus gave us a glimpse. Now, either Peter, James, and John are amongst the biggest liars in all history or what they saw is going to be true for you. Either they're liars because if they didn't see what they reported they saw, they have deceived millions. Is that not correct? They said they saw the Lord transfigured. He was totally changed in front of them. And they saw him glowing. And we, in, in the church, we call this glowing with uncreated light. And in the midst of this, they also have a recognition of those who have departed this life. Furthermore, there is communication with those who have departed this life. I'm not talking about a seance. I don't, the seances are not a good thing. They are a bad thing. You don't ever get involved in that. It's bad stuff. But what Peter, James, and John actually got a glimpse of, they got a, a, a glimpse just a momentary, as it were, glimpse of heaven and what it will be like. One of those who was on the mountain, St. John, he says this about it. He says in 1 John chapter 2, he says, Beloved, we do not now know what we shall be. While we're living in this life, we don't know what we shall be. But, says he, we know that when we see him, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. Who saw Jesus as he now is? Who saw him that way? Three people. Peter saw him, James saw him, and John saw him. They saw him glorified. And that, folks, is what you are supposed to be like in heaven. Can you imagine it? Now hang on. You are supposed to glow. You are supposed to be brighter than the sun. You're supposed to be whiter than any possible in light. Not in skin, that's irrelevant. You're supposed to be lighter in light than any conceivable whitening that can be done with light. That's the way you're supposed to be. Are you going to be in a church service throughout all heaven? Is it going to just be one eternal service? Well, frankly, I wouldn't be terribly interested in one eternal service. It's hard enough to sit through an hour and a half. How about an eternal one? I mean, even with good music. 
No. What happens? There's conversation. There is discussion. There is dignity. Can you imagine the dignity that comes to Moses and Elijah in being able to discuss with the Almighty Son of God to discuss with him what's about to happen? Elijah, the prophet, understood what was to come. At least he was understood something was to come, and he prophesied it. And Moses, the greatest of the prophets, understood at least some of the prophecies, and they began to see all these things fulfilled. And in heaven, what we discover is there is an utter transformation. And I love it when we get into a memorial service where we, a place of brightness. Isn't that what we say in the, in the memorial service? A place of brightness, a place of verdure, a place of repose from whence all sickness and sorrow have fled away. You know, I, I, I'm a little embarrassed to say this today, but I'm going to do it. I was sort of looking up here today, and now don't get mad at me, folks, but I said, uh-oh, here's the geriatric session, uh, section in this parish. I mean, here, the average age in here is about, Nick, you ruined the average, you know. I mean, you probably bring it down to about 87. And I was thinking, but you understand, as I understand more every day, aging and what it does to this once magnificent body. <laughs> No, it was never magnificent, believe me. <laughs> but it sure is in bad shape sometimes now. It's all gone. A place of brightness, a place of verdure, a place of repose whence all sickness and sorrow have fled away where everyone is in his or her right mind. Where all is grand, where all is glory. You get a glimpse of this in the transfiguration it was done for us, it was for our sake, that we along the way might be motivated to pursue this. You can spend your life living for what's going on this earth. You know, you have to pay attention to what's going on on earth. You, you do have to go to work. You do have to, to take care of your family. You do have to provide for food. You have to take care of these things. But it can't be your focus. What you want your focus is to be is on eternal life. The, the most popular verse, not the most quoted verse, but maybe the most popular verse in all the Bible is God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that all who would believe in him should not perish. That's 1% of Americans who believe that's going to happen to him maybe but have everlasting life, that's 80%, okay? He came to give us everlasting life. Folks, that's what it's all about. That's where you want your focus. If you've got your focus there, then what's happening here and now can be endured rather easily. I've told you before about my friend Marcus. Marcus lives in Atlanta. When I knew him, uh, had a moderate income, and he lived, in an, he lived about three blocks from where he does now. But Marcus was the president of a bank, uh, of a branch bank. But what Marcus Cook knew was that one day he was going to be really quite wealthy. There was going to be an inheritance. And it was very easy for him to endure what he was putting up with at that time 
because he knew that the day would come when financially things would be much better for his family. You see, we can be motivated if we have an understanding of what's ahead of us. And so many times you give up and you quit. And you say, is it worth it? I don't want to go to church. I don't want to be religious. I don't want, why, why doesn't God do more things for me? It's your focus is wrong. Get your focus fixed on what's to come. And as we observe this transfiguration of the Lord, let yourself be really encouraged because you see what's coming is you're going to be in a, in a new heaven and a new earth in which perfection dwells. Says St. Paul, we are going to be transformed from one degree of glory to another. Even in heaven, there's going to be a progressing from glory to glory to glory to glory. Doesn't it make what you're living with now worth enduring? And doesn't it encourage you to have great hope? Let your faith reign today as you observe the transfiguration of Christ.